right, let's give it up for the worship team. Always doing a great job helping us get to a place of worship. Um, so I untucked my shirt today, but I asked the Kingdom Kids teachers if it was all right, if I look, didn't look too informal, and they said it looked fine, but I'm feeling very insecure about it right now. And I feel like I'm disrespecting God. So if you see me doing this at all, it's because I'm really uncomfortable doing this on stage. Um, but I want to say uh, happy Memorial Day weekend again to, uh, to everybody here. Uh, I have a lot of military in my family. And these kinds of holidays uh, are, are very important to, to us as a family to honor. My, both my grandfathers, one served in Vietnam, one served in World War II. And uh, my grandfather that served in World War II, his entire unit was killed on Dog Beach, and he was actually supposed to be there. And so days like this are a very big deal in, uh, in my family to remember that. And if you, didn't, if you didn't actually know, Memorial Day is not meant to honor vets. It's meant to honor the fallen. So, so to think about, like, if you, you know, don't, don't thank the vets for their service on Memorial Day. Just take time tomorrow, whatever your day is, if you're going shopping, barbecuing, enjoying the freedoms that we get to have here in, uh, in the States, to just say a prayer and just thank God for the men and women that serve to make it possible. Uh, and on that note, I'm actually going to say a word of prayer here to, uh, kick, uh, to kick off our sermon and to um, uh, thank God for all those things. Father, I do just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you like this. Uh, I know in, in a special way I want to thank you for the men and women that, that have served in our country, that have fallen, uh, so that we can have these kinds of freedoms available to us, to be able to worship the way that we get to, uh, and, and not have to be in fear the way that so many parts of the world do. And uh, I, I really do want to pray for the families of those that have fallen, especially those that have fallen in the last couple of years. I just really pray that tomorrow they'll really feel a special layer of comfort from you uh, as they think about their loved ones that have served. Uh, and right now, God, I want to pray for our hearts to engage with you in the Scriptures. I pray that you will really help, to, uh, help us to really be present with you uh, in every way here uh, as, we, as we dig further into this incredible, deep topic of grace. Father, please, uh, please speak through me, and uh, Holy Spirit, just move me out of the way. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, so if you're visiting with us, we are uh, about a month into our new series that we're doing, Strong in the Grace. And, uh, and again, the, the point of this is really for us to take time to dive into a topic that is so important for us as disciples and so often misunderstood and misrepresented. Uh, I know even last week we got to talk, that, because the word grace, the charis, the Greece, or the Greek there, shows up uh, several different times. And last week we got to talk about uh, Paul mentioning to the church in Corinth to excel in the grace of giving. That God wants us to not just receive His grace, but to give grace through offerings, through serving, through all these different avenues. And then the week before that, it was really cool that we got to go through on Mother's Day I thought Scott did a great job sharing about the story of Jesus and, and Mary together and how God showed his favor to Mary, showed his grace to her through his, her relationship with Jesus. And, uh, and today we're going we're gonna to get into this uh, a little bit more. The title for our sermon today is called Grace That Works. And I don't know what this makes you think of, but what it makes me think of is how sometimes in life things work and sometimes they don't. Right? Go no further than technology. We are in the age of technology, right? right hopefully you guys remembered to mute your phones. But, uh, 
In a world where we can have a beautiful new Samsung S10 with 5G technology. We're up to 5Gs now. I don't even know that I really understand what the difference is yet between 4G and 5G other than faster. Whatever that means. Yeah, it sounds better. It sounds a lot cooler, right? Um, But in the same world, you could have a phone like this or a phone like this. This is the Samsung Note 7 from a couple years ago. If you don't remember, they were spontaneously combusting. They had to do a recall. I saw some gnarly pictures. This dude like burned a hole through his pocket and his leg from it. They didn't, they outlawed him on planes. Uh, I remember when we, when we actually were flying to the Middle East several years ago, they like asked everybody, if you have a Samsung Note 7, make yourself known on this plane right now because you're a flight hazard. Um, but not even just with the phones themselves, our phone assistants, right? They're smartphones. They're supposed to make our lives easier. But we all know that our phone assistants are completely unreliable. You know, when you want them to work, they don't. You know, anybody who's ever tried to dictate a text to somebody and looks down at the final product knows it doesn't work like you want it to about 90% of the time. Right? But then it just spontaneously starts up. Suri likes to just kind of show herself whenever she wants to in our lives. Actually, I have a little experiment here. Ready, ready? Siri? Oh, it didn't work. Bummer. I was really hoping it would. I was going to tell Siri to mute your phone for you. Um, but the truth is, is that way in life as well. You know, sometimes, sometimes we go big and we try things out and they don't quite work the way that you expect. You know, like if you ever watch pro athletes on TV and think, I could try that. Right? Kind of like these people did. That's the one that worked. That's the one that did. There's a lot more, but I want to save you the pain. Yeah, it's a, you, you don't have to look very far to find things like this. You know, the, the truth is, life can feel like this sometimes, right? Things work out and you stick the landing and it's beautiful, and then there's other times where you fall flat on your face. But you know what? I am very grateful for where technology is at today because of the awesome advances in technology, I get to introduce you to somebody. This is baby Trace. That's my third child right there. Yes, we are pregnant. We're we're due on Christmas Day right now. So please be praying for us. We don't we don't know if it's a boy or girl yet, so right now I've just called it Trace and it's just stayed there. Uh but yeah. Please be praying for my wife and the baby. Everything's going great. But, but I'm so fired up that, that I get the chance to have a third kid. Hopefully it's a boy. We'll see what God does there. But I'm very grateful that technology worked and that I was able to see my baby uh, last week. But going back to the sermon, we get spiritual again. Uh, as we dig into grace today, I, I want us to ask ourselves a question. And this question is also going to serve as our first point for those of you guys that are taking notes. And this is the question I want you to consider. 
Does your version of grace work? Does the version of grace that you have in your mind, when you think of what grace is supposed to be in the Bible, does the version that you have in your head, the version that you live out, does it work? Does your understanding match the grace of the Bible? And is it leading you to the life that God intended for you? I know I asked several weeks ago, how many of us understand how significant grace is? And everybody raise your hand. How many of us know that, that grace is the only thing that saves us? Everybody raise your hand. How many of us can really explain it and really feel like we have a grasp, a good understanding of it? And there was like four people that raised their hand. And really what that communicates is our version of grace is usually not God's. And I want to ask some more questions to dig deeper into this. Just think for yourself. Does your version of grace, does it tolerate and give you a free pass to sin? Or does it lead you to repentance? Does your version of grace make you fearful of God and the consequences? Or does it show you an unlimited capacity for forgiveness and rescue no matter what the sin? Does it accuse you as unworthy and unlovable? Or does it validate you as a son or a daughter of God? Does it make you afraid of failure? Or does it show you that you can be daring and use your God-given gifts to serve and show other people who Jesus is? Does it lull you into a state of selfishness and spiritual lethargy? Or does it ignite you to be faithful and to love others as you serve with your gifts and share your life with other people? And the last one, does your version of grace lead you to a place of perennial penance? Trying to earn what God has given you? Trying to win God's favor with good deeds? Or does it drive you to work hard for the Lord? Because you know you've been given a gift that you can't repay. Oftentimes, the way I just described grace is the fight that's going on internally with us spiritually. We misappropriate what grace is supposed to be, either in our favor or not in our favor. And as you consider the question, the bigger, as you consider these questions, there's one bigger question that we got to ask ourselves with it. If this is how we think of grace, is it really grace? Is your version really grace? Today our main text is going to come out of Ephesians 2, so I want you to turn your Bible over there. If you look up sermons on grace, I would say that probably 90% of them are going to be on this passage. But, uh, you know, the book of Ephesians is an interesting book because it's written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, and the church in Ephesus had a lot of problems. Matter of fact, if you ever study out First and Second Timothy, those books were, the book, First and Second Timothy was written to Timothy to help the church in Ephesus with all their problems. And they had a lot. They had false doctrines that were spreading around. There were leaders that weren't rising up. There was a lack of leadership in the church. They had people that were trying to draw people away from God. There was, there was sexual morality. There were people that were, that were posing as Christians while in deep roots of sin. There was a ton of problems. But what's interesting about Ephesians is that Ephesians does not directly address any sin in particular. Like any situation. It says, okay, deal with this. 
Instead, instead of addressing all the problems in this book, Paul spends most of the book talking about God's eternal purpose, his grace, and his goals for the church. And what strikes me about this, and this is important as we're going into this passage, is that part of what I think it's communicating is that when we get connected with what God intended grace to be in the Bible, when we get connected to the real version of grace, a grace that really works, things start to change. Our life is different. Our sin is different. Our attitudes are different. Let's pick up in Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, who is God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. I'm going to stop there for a moment. So Paul starts this chapter off by reminding the church of who they are and what they deserve. Fun, right? When somebody comes to you and goes, okay, let me tell you who you really are. You sinner. You pagan. And the truth is, if you have not been made right with God, if you're in this room right now and you are not in the right relationship with God yet, this describes you. This is not exclusive to people that are coming from outside of the church either. For the kingdom kids in the room, if you grew up in church, this absolutely is your story. Every single man and woman on earth is starting from this place. And how Paul describes it, fun words like dead, following a cruel master, a slave to your desires and thoughts, and specifically an object of wrath. To really stop and consider this, it's a pretty scary thing. Paul says that in our nature, our thesis, talks about who we are in our being. Forget individual, like, this isn't because I did this. It's in your physical nature, in your human nature, the way you think, the way you operate, the way you tend to rebel against the good. Who you are at your core, you are undeserving and not just or you are deserving, and not just of death, but specifically the word wrath. Now, if you were to put your sinful actions, this is for perspective here, if you were to put our sinful actions in front of a celestial judge, not just your actions, your thoughts. Hebrews talks about that. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You don't deserve just to die, but to be tortured. The picture I got when I was reading these commentaries about the word wrath and what it was using to describe it, it's like a wild animal ripping something apart. Something that's just just rabid and going crazy. You deserve to be pulled apart in pieces because of your sin, not just to have a quick, easy death. Now you might be saying, okay, we get it, Jake, back off. These aren't fun images. 
But honestly, the, image is, the imagery is important here. Because part of why I believe Paul is trying to do this, and keep in mind, he's writing this to a church that's going through a lot of sin. And part of what I think he's trying to do is he's trying to attack our pride and our ego. The part of us that's, that wants to feel entitled to what we have here. The part of us that says, you know what, I'm not who I used to be, and so I'm doing pretty good. So no, you don't. No, you don't. Matter of fact, if you remember, really what you deserve is you deserve the cross. You deserve to be eaten by a wild animal. Your rotted carcass picked on by vultures. Yeah, that kind of fun. But it's also to illustrate the contrast. In verse 4, if you caught it there, it says, right before that, like the rest, we were by nature objects deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He's saying, look, this is really what you deserve, but this is what you get. It's, it's not just hyperbole, but it is hyperbole, like the way that, that Jesus said, you need to hate your father and mother compared to your love for me. This is what you deserve, but this is what God gives you. Because of his great Love for us that far surpasses what you've earned. Our merciful God made you alive through His grace and favor. Consider the power of that kind of contrast. You and I deserve death and dismemberment and in the moment where you're walking up to the torture chamber where it's supposed to happen, God decided because He likes you so much to push you out of the way and to give them Jesus instead. How powerful is that, church? If there's ever a reason to say amen, that's it. As you sit here right now, if you're still not connecting with this, turn off your phone. Have a cup of Folgers and wake up. Because God likes you enough to send His Son to be tortured for you. But on the other hand, you may be completely aware of your sin and feel like a steaming pile of garbage. Maybe you're sitting in these pews right now and you're hurting. God loves you and likes you enough that he thinks you are worth the gamble of grace. It's not mutually exclusive. It's not just for the people that are hard-hearted. It's for the people that are hurting and suffering, that are the guilty conscience, that just feel like God's, God can't save me. This is how powerful real salvation through grace is. He's giving you the opportunity to go from an enemy of Christ, is how Paul describes it oftentimes. An enemy of Christ to being invited to be a part of an, an eternal love feast. This isn't just talking about the moment of salvation at baptism either. But something that we get to continue to experience. Look what he says in verse 6. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Stop there. Paul says that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. That's not just a, like a what's coming. That's like a right now. If you're right with God, if you've been baptized as a disciple of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, in you that means your spirit is seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The grace that we get is not just a one-time deal. It's not just a, all right, this time and this time only through this baptism, you can be cleansed of your sins. It's something that we get to experience throughout our lives on into heaven. Matter of fact, in verse 7, the words it uses to describe are so cool. It says, in the coming ages, that's as you continue to live, as you continue to go on, through Christians, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The idea is that God wants to show you off as an object of grace in your life. He wants to show all that comes with his grace, not just once at salvation, but perpetually throughout our lives. Grace officially starts at salvation, but then it carries over into every single area and facet that we live. We get to, that means we get to see the riches of God's favor, the incomparable riches, meaning there's nothing that you can compare it to. There's nothing that comes close. I ran, a, I ran the Spartan Beast a week and a half ago, or a week ago. It just feels like a week and a half ago because I just started getting better. And... I had nothing to compare the physical, the, the, the physical pain and trauma that that was like. I was like trying to figure out, is this, does this come close to wrestling? Does this come close to any race I've ever run? No, there's nothing that even comes close to this. God says, the grace that I have to show you that pours out into every part of your life, there's nothing for you to compare it to. And you get to experience it in your love life, in your marriage with your children, your friendships. You can experience it even at your workplace, at school, whatever area of your life, the riches of God's grace gets to be poured out on you. Cole described it when we were in the Kingdom Kids uh, communion. He said, it's like gravy. God just smothers it <laughs> all over your life. He said, I don't know why I'm thinking gravy when I'm talking about grace, but I'm thinking gravy. It means God will permeate every area of our lives with grace. And if you're like me, though, your problem is that you have a really hard time trusting this. You carry the weight of regret from your past, the stuff that haunts you and the stuff that you refuse to let go of. Maybe you struggle with feeling like it runs out after a while. Yeah, I... I used to really experience God's grace, but you know, I, 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 this keeps not changing and I think God's done with me. Maybe you feel like there's conditions to renew it. Or maybe you just walk around thinking, you know what? God's just disappointed in you and His grace is just a waste on you. 
This version of grace doesn't work. And it doesn't lead you to the life that God wants. I've read so many books on this subject. I've studied it out so many times. But I still wrestle with it constantly. But thankfully, though, so did Paul. I want you to keep your finger in Ephesians and turn over to 2 Corinthians with me. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 12. Paul writes, Therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. You know, we don't know exactly what Paul's thorn was. A lot of people have guessed it. A lot of people wondered. Think maybe it was a physical ailment. Maybe it was just kind of a, a, a sin that kept pestering him. Uh, if you never saw it, I would highly recommend it. Two years ago, there was a great Apostle Paul movie that came out. Uh, Jim Caviezel is not Paul or Jesus. He's Luke. Um, but uh, the way they portrayed Paul's thorn was really powerful because they portrayed it as the guilt in the faces of the people that he killed before he became a Christian. But ultimately, we don't know. It was something that seemed to stir up a lot of shame and regret in his life, though. Enough so, it says, what, he, what it says here is it says that he begged God to take it away. Begged him, God, please, please just... Uh, you know, I, I trust you, but just, just please just get rid of this from my life. And instead of that, what God said is, no, I won't. But what I will do is remind you that my grace is enough. And my power is going to be seen through this. Through this battle, through this struggle. That's where my grace and my power are most going to be seen. God is able to take your worst moments, your shortcomings, and downfalls, and display His grace and power through it. And I want you to think for a moment about a time when you most wanted to quit on God or you most questioned His grace. Just think about what that might be for you. In my experience, the reasons why we most want to give up on God and the, most re- the reasons why we most question grace is one of three things. It's either a deep sense of shame and regret. You feel like there's something that's unforgivable, something you've done you can't recover from, something that God can't forgive. It could be recent, it could be in your past, something that still haunts you. Number two, life gets challenging and gets hard. And you struggle with seeing where God is in the middle of it. And you question whether or not the grace is still working. Or number three, 
which really is actually connected and tied to the first two, is you think that there's something better out there. When I was 19 years old, I was in a bad place spiritually. Freshman, I was finishing up my freshman year of college, and I got into sin with a girl that I shouldn't have had anything to do with. And in the week following it, you know, I, I tried to take ownership of what I'd done. I started confessing, trying to get help because I wanted to be different. But I remember there was, there was a point in time when I was walking back from, uh, from work and I was thinking to myself about the reality of what had happened and thinking to myself, you know what, God's done with you. You're not bouncing back from this one. He doesn't want to have anything to do with somebody that was willing to cross the lines that you did. I remember for the first time in my life, I actually started to explore what my life without God would look like. And I was living with disciples at the time, so I was thinking, okay, do I got to move out? Um, what am I going to do on Sundays? Am I going to just pick up extra shifts, I guess? But I was convinced that God was finished with me. And it was actually that night that a friend of mine, Stuart Maines, I think saved my soul in a lot of regards to help remind me of God's grace and go take me to go pray. And he prayed when I couldn't. But I got to experience grace in that moment. You know, on the other side of that, more recently, you know, we guys got to hear a couple weeks ago um, about my parents going on leave. In about a two-week window, uh, my parents took their leave, found out that my brother relapsed after seven months of being clean in dramatic fashion, and found out that I was going to have a baby. And I was really struggling with wondering where God was in all of it. And I really struggled with feeling like this isn't fair. You know, yet another child that my brother's not going to be involved with. My parents, who had been a safe place for a long time, just, you know, they're, they're not going to be around immediately right now while they're working through their stuff. And it made me question God's grace. It made me question whether or not God was still working. But luckily, in those moments of faithlessness and hopelessness, when we most feel like giving up and cashing in, that's usually where God meets us with grace. Those things that we are weak in, the moments of hopelessness, can become a beacon of the riches of God's favor. Paul is trying to get us to surrender to something that's incomparable to anything we have in our life. And you know what? It works when you trust it. Last point, last question. Is grace working through you? Back over to Ephesians 2. Still with me? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace was given to us by God as a gift. But it's important for us to understand something about this, because this gets misrepresented a lot. The word gift is important because it was given to us as something that we didn't earn or deserve. Right? That's the nature of a gift. Something that you get in spite of what you've earned, deserved, or like you didn't pay for it. But even though it's a gift, it wasn't free. That's the thing that, that gets misrepresented. Grace was not a free gift. It came at the highest cost. God purchased salvation for you because of his favor towards you through the death of Jesus. You deserve wrath, but God bought the gift of salvation. Sorry, not the gift of grace, but the gift of salvation through the death of Jesus. You have not merited, and nor will you ever merit, salvation and eternal life. God paid for it with his own son. No good thing you will ever do will earn, pay penance for, or merit salvation. Now, the Isaiah scripture describes your, your, your most righteous deed is a filthy rag. The actual the Hebrew translation is a menstrual rag. It's pretty gross. That's what your good deeds are to God. But if you were God, I want you to think about this for a second. If you were God and you paid for the most valuable gift on the earth, how would you expect us to use it? Imagine God waiting for you as you walk to the cross to be tortured and killed for what you deserve. And God's saying, no, I like them so much, I will trade my son, my one and only son, my most valuable thing for them. Then God turns to us, free men and women, and says, now you are free to sleep with whoever you want, to do drugs, to drink, to watch pornography, to kill, steal, keep to yourself, and watch TV and play video games, whatever your heart desires. I will pay the ultimate cost for you to do whatever you want. That doesn't make any sense. That makes zero sense. God didn't save us from wrath to indulge in the acts of destruction and run from Him. He saved you to walk in his favor and live a life that reflects his grace. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, you don't need to turn there, but Paul says, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Matter of fact, verse 10, as Paul elaborates here, a beautiful word says, God says that we are God's workmanship. His craft, his Sistine Chapel, his, his statue of David. We are his, his masterpiece, created for good works. This is the part of scripture that a lot of people leave out in grace sermons. That God prepared in advance for us to experience grace through Jesus and display grace in our lives. 
It's very important that we understand, though, that Paul is not saying that we do good deeds to earn our salvation. He's not saying you're doing good deeds to pay off your debt. He's saying, but now that we are saved, now that we've been given this ultimate gift, he's got some awesome work for us to do. He's been planning it since before you were born. The Greek word for work, you knew this was coming, is ergon. E-R-G-O-N. And it appears 171 times in the New Testament. It shows up as good deeds in Matthew 5. John 6 says, The ergon of God is to have faith in the one he sent. Later in Ephesians, or in Acts uh, 26.20, Paul preaches that people should repent and demonstrate the repentance with their ergon. Later in Ephesians, Paul illustrates that God designed, that God has all these designated, amazing good works for us to do. When he talks in verse, in chapter 4, starting in chapter 4 really, he talks about making every effort to be united with each other. He talks about using our gifts to support the church and what God is doing. He talks about repentance. He talks about fulfilling the roles that we have in our families as spouses, as kids, as parents. He even talks about how we are in our jobs. He talks about slavery. I don't, I don't care if you don't like your job. It's not slavery. But in Ephesians, he talks to slaves and he says, look, you have good work to do as a slave with your boss. There's a story I want to share with you with this. It's a cool one. It's about the Golden Gate Bridge when it was being built. During the building of the Golden Gate Bridge over San Francisco Bay, construction fell badly behind schedule because several workers had accidentally fallen from the scaffolding to their deaths. Engineers and administrators could find no solution to the costly delays. Finally, someone suggested a gigantic net be hung under the bridge to catch any who fell. Intelligence, right? Finally, in spite of the enormous cost, you look at that, I mean, it's not like super fancy and sophisticated. The engineers opted for the net. After it was installed, progress was hardly interrupted. A worker or two fell into the net but were saved. Ultimately, all the time lost to, the, to fear was regained by replacing fear with faith in the net. And a project that was set to take a year took six months. This is actually a picture. It's going to be hard to see from this. But right there underneath it, under the scaffolding, you can see the net that was laid out. What's the point? God's grace gives us salvation as a safety net. As a safety net to be disciples and take risks. The reason why those workers were able to work so efficiently was because they could have confidence that even if something happened, they were protected. The idea behind this is that God gives us grace partially because He wants us to go out and live this amazing life as disciples knowing that no matter what, He's got us. Again, that's not a freedom to do whatever you want necessarily. But it's the freedom to go be bold. In Romans 12, 6, 
When Paul talks about that, that by his grace he gave gifts to us. He gives you gifts and talents. Part of the safety net of grace is using your gifts to serve. If you have a talent or a gift that you're sitting on because you're, you're insecure or whatever, you don't know grace. You're supposed to be using your gift in grace. You know how many times I've screwed up songs as a song leader? I've had flat notes, been off, been, been off beat, sang the wrong song, stared at my drummer like it's his fault. Augie does a great job. But that's my panic mode when I know I'm not doing something right. I'm like, Augie, what am I doing? God's saying, use your gifts. Take a risk. Try it out. If your gift is web design, come talk to me. I got a lot for you to do. If you don't even know if it's a gift, try it out. Who cares? Take a risk. Let's not be afraid to fall. In John 4, Jesus tells his disciples to open their eyes and look at the harvest. Because it's ripe. He's trying to encourage them to share their faith and to love the lost. To not wait on opportunities, but to see, look, there are people around you everywhere that are looking for me. You can share your faith and say something stupid. Who cares? What are they going to say? No. Try it out. One of my old roommates in college, I love talking about him. He was the most, like, uneloquent person I've ever met when it came to sharing his faith. But he was so effective because he just said, you want to know Jesus? That's it. That's as far as it went. Try it. Take a risk because you know what? Grace is there to catch you. And you know what? You'd be surprised. Oftentimes when I've engaged in these really heavy theological battles and telling you about all the great things I know about the Bible, none of those people came to church or studied the Bible. The people that I was like, hey, we're having a Bible talk, they came. <laughs> Going back to the death row description for a second. If God was willing to step in front and pay that ultimate cost for us with Jesus, don't you think he wants us to tell people about it? If you knew that you were going to die, if you knew that like you, you did a crime that was going to merit your death and somebody saved you, wouldn't you tell people about it? Take a risk. I want to close with this passage. In 1 Corinthians 15. Starting verse 9. Oh, wait, no, not 9. Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, no, it is right. It is 9. My fault. All right, starting in verse 9. For I am the least of all the apostles. I do not deserve, even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. 
Paul had a mature understanding of grace. Where he's at at this stage of his life, he says, look, I know I'm not a fool. I'm not here because I've earned it. I know what I deserve. Everything that I am, everything that I've done, any good that comes out of me, anything that I have to offer that's of God, it's a product of grace. I am only here because God has shown favor to me. We are here because of grace. But what is convicting and challenging in this to me is that he says, but his grace with me was not without effect. I cannot think about the cost that God paid in order for me to be here and not do something about it. I can't acknowledge what God has rescued me from and not tell people about it. I can't understand what was waiting for me that God spared me and gave me eternity for and not give my life to serve. And keep in mind again, he's not saying, I'm doing this to pay back what God has done. He's doing this saying, look, you cannot really understand God's grace and not go do something about it, people. It's motivated me. Matter of fact, I'm doing the things, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the Aragons more and harder than anybody else because of what God's done. So going back to the first question I asked to start off our sermon. If your version of God's grace is not leading you closer to God, if it's not helping you to connect on a constant basis of what you deserve but what you get instead, and if it is not motivating you, if you are sitting here as a disciple of Jesus doing nothing, you don't know grace. You're not living it. God wants us to use the grace that works. It's the grace that Jesus was willing to pay his life for. So on that note here, as we take communion together, take some time, I encourage you to reflect on, you know, if you need to take a moment to think about the wrath that was, that was due you because of something, whatever, think about that. But think about the life that you have now and what God wants you to do with the grace that you've been given. And I, and I always like doing this, but I want you to imagine for a second if just the people in this room, if we were really living by grace that works, what would this transform in everybody else? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, I want to thank you so much for loving us beyond, beyond measure and beyond compare. God, thank you for sparing us from the wrath that we deserve. And thank you, God, for rescuing us and, and continuing to pour your grace out to us time after time after time after time again. And I pray, God, that we will be a people that, that 
even as we, as we take communion every week, Father, that we remember what was paid for us, we also remember that, that, that because of what was paid for us, God, that, that we want our lives to be an, an overflowing and an outpouring to show people your love for them. God, I thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. For taking a gamble on us. And I pray, God, that, that, that we will be men and women that will grow deeper in, in our trust and faith in our appreciation for your grace and that it define who we are as we continue to go forward into heaven with you. We love you. and see your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.